From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. In southern Colorado, there's a housing crunch. There are also houses sitting empty. The thing is, they're dilapidated. So a college program trains people in construction in just one month and makes these homes livable again. You come out of that program as a certified construction worker. You get a belt full of tools for free, and you actually get paid 12 bucks an hour for the work on the blighted houses. Is this win-win working out? I'll ask our Southern Colorado reporter, Dan Boyce, who spent some time in Trinidad. Then, for a century, single-family homes have dominated the housing landscape statewide. A firm of experienced city planners was retained to make the dream city as perfect as men can conceive. But the future here might look pretty different. Thank you for supporting solutions-based climate reporting. Your gift makes a significant difference for the future of this kind of focused journalism. There's still time to join the effort at cpr.org slash climate. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. In southern Colorado, there's a housing crunch, even though there are empty homes. The thing is, they're dilapidated, unlivable, which is why a new community college program trains future construction workers by having them renovate blighted properties. CPR southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce is going to tell us more about this. Hi, Dan. Hi, Ryan. Why so many blighted homes in that part of the state? Well, basically, it's just that many southern Colorado counties are among the poorest in the state. And that area from Pueblo on south was largely left out of the sort of economic good times that the rest of the front range has historically seen, especially in the last decade. And uh, for this conversation today, let's look at one town as an example of that, Trinidad, which admittedly, you know, they have been seeing a resurgence in some vitality in the last couple years. Yeah, since the pandemic, I think. Yeah, the a community of artists relocated from Denver and it, Trinidad's charming little town core it really is turning around. But overall, it's boom and bust history means you will see neighborhoods just dotted with rundown homes. Enter this fairly new community college program. Yes, it's called Copper has a a great acronym, the Colorado Partnership for Education and Rural Revitalization. And maybe surprisingly, this is an initiative out of the Colorado Attorney General's office. Uh, How's that work? It is a little circuitous. So back in 2012, Colorado got a a bunch of money, like $200 million plus out of what was known as the National Mortgage Settlement, which the country's biggest mortgage lenders paid out for their role in the Great Recession money, I gather, that flowed through the AG's office. Right. And when Phil Weiser takes over in 2018, he sees some of those funds remain. I asked the question, how much of this money dedicated to housing has been invested in housing south of Pueblo? The answer, none. The answer was none. He takes $5 million of that and creates this copper initiative, which holds these short-run construction training program. Students go through the course in one month and half their time is in the classroom and the other half is very much so hands-on fixing up the rundown homes we've been talking about. And the theory is if you train people to redevelop these properties, you do redevelop them, you'll sell them, improving the community, 
and the money will go back into the program and it will keep sustaining itself. I understand the first class started at Trinidad State College two years ago, and they just finished their first renovation. You visited. Uh, What was it like? I show up to this neighborhood on the west side of Trinidad, and there are two homes right next to each other, and it's pretty much a very clear before and after, one renovated from copper and the other still blighted. I'm looking at your photo from the story online at CPR.org. One of the homes is a crisp gray, new windows, new front door. Uh, the other, a bit sad looking with worn siding. Yeah, the the worn down one, I I, I think you're being a little charitable. It's, <laughs> it seems like a, gl- a glorified shack to me. So uh, Jerry Begley is the name of the man who runs the construction training program at Trinidad State. And he takes me into this first house, the rundown one. And, man, it is it is bad inside. You can see into the walls. And the walls, this, this home's about a century old. And it was uh, they used just dirt for insulation. So you can see clumps of dirt and straw from 100 years ago. And the place, there are just holes in the middle of the ground. It's it's absolutely a, a safety hazard. But two students are inside with us because Bagley, he only has two students taking the program for the month I visited, which was March. And they're from very different walks of life. First, Brian Moreno, he worked at an auto body shop and that was a good job, but he just had a daughter and he needs more money. So he goes to Trinidad State and he starts their welding program. But the thing is, that is a year long. It was just too much for my life right now, you know, so I just need to get a job and something quick, you know, so so support my family. Ah, and then he finds out about the copper program, I gather, and that only lasts a month. Totally. And you come out of that program as a certified construction worker. You get a belt full of tools for free and you actually get paid 12 bucks an hour for the work you put in on the blighted houses. That was a good fit for him. That's like a paid internship. Uh, What about the other student you met inside? Stephen Wilson. Uh, He's a guy in his 50s, retired military, and he took his GI Bill to learn more about business management. But he's interested in working on the business side of the construction industry. He has other family in construction, and he felt he needed to know how to do the hands-on part of construction as well. And in a month-long program, that also sounded just right for him. These men are learning to do pretty much anything, Ryan, anything that they need to do on that day to renovate the house because... Really, it's different every day, rebuilding a place from the ground up. Like we had to break a cast iron tub. You're not going to do that in a college setting. Me and Brian, we tore up that tub. And I'm saying that tub probably weighed at least four or 500 pounds. And we had to break it in half. You know, that's stuff you're not going to learn in a classroom. Like I said, Ryan, whatever needs to be done that day. Again, uh, Jerry Begley, the man who runs the program, He's been surprised by the number of people taking his course just to learn the skills of construction. He says, for instance, he's had a a number of women take the course not for a career change, but to learn home improvement for their own needs. Okay, tell us about the house on the right in your photo, the glimmering gray finished one. It is the first home to be completed through this grant program, and it's got new plumbing, wiring, new HVAC. It's a two-bed, two-bath starter home. The college hopes to get something like $220,000 for it. Huh. And, you know, Ryan, for me as a guy who you know himself is looking to buy his first house, I was 
I walked in that place and thinking, you know, this looks this looks pretty dang good. I would totally go for a house like this. Uh, granted, of course, I, I live in Colorado Springs, so mm. it won't be me. A $220,000 home. Yeah, that would make a lot of people happy in Denver. Um, this copper program is expanding, right? Yeah, new programs have started at Trinidad State's Alamosa campus, at Lamar Community College, and just this February, they launched at Pueblo Community College. And yet, only one home finished two years in. What gives? Right. That did seem slow to me. Jerry Begley at Trinidad State, he says he expects the program will be able to turn homes around faster as it goes on and they get more comfortable with it. Dan, is this really a solution to affordable housing needs? It's a great question. The people behind the program say for now, it's really less about the number of homes they turn around and it's more about the workforce development. Having these short courses, turning around as many people as they can and getting those people plugged into construction jobs in Southern Colorado, in these communities. And and they also say, you know, if you have a neighborhood that has a couple of dilapidated houses and the program comes in and fixes them up, that changes the character of the whole neighborhood, you know, and that could boost adjacent property values as well. A lot of nuance there. Uh, Dan, I understand there's a surprising twist in this story before we let you go. So when I started reporting on this, I would have figured that the one thing that an idea like this had on lock would be the supply side, that we know there are a ton of blighted houses, they have the houses they can work on. But talking to the people at Trinidad State, they say the biggest challenge for them so far has been getting their hands on blighted homes to work on. Why? Yeah, even if these houses have been vacant for decades... Somebody still owns them. And oftentimes, it's really difficult to find out who owns them. I was speaking to the city manager for Trinidad. He's been having some of the same problems in the city's core as they're renovating some of those uh, commercial buildings downtown. And the only property information you might be able to find is a hundred-year-old piece of paper in the back of some drawer at the bottom of a county assessor's office. It, this stuff is is difficult, and there aren't clear systems for finding out who owns these properties. And mm. asking Attorney General Phil Weiser about that, he says that that has been part of the learning experience of the copper program. And he, he says that he is trying to find some sort of workaround to, to try to find a balance between, you, you know, people's property rights, uh, condemnation laws, and the hopes of getting these homes eventually back into circulation. Dan, thanks so much for this window into housing and construction and, I guess, gumshoe work in Southern Colorado. (laughs) Uh, You're welcome, Ryan. CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce, he looked into a program from the attorney general's office meant to increase the housing supply and train people in construction. It's called Copper. Read Dan's reporting and see pictures from his visit to Trinidad at CPR.org. And we'll be right back with the fight to reshape land use policy in Colorado. Something of a housing theme in today's show. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The Southwest United States has been in a drought for more than 20 years. 
a big problem for the Colorado River and the people who use it. Parched, the new podcast from CPR News, is about people who rely on the river that shape the West and have ideas to save it. We cannot just allow nature to disappear. Find Parched wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Alpine Bank. For nearly a century, single-family homes have dominated this state's housing landscape. But the future could look very different if Governor Polis and his allies have their way. Let's get into it with Purplish, CPR's podcast about politics and policy. Here are public affairs reporter Andrew Kenny and our transportation and growth reporter Nathaniel Miner. I'm standing here in the studio with my colleague Nate Miner because he insists I just have to see something. All right, Andy, I'm going to show you this video. Uh, it's back from the 1950s. Nice. It's called Birth of a City. Birth of a City. All right, here we go. What is this? Okay, so this is a promotional video for Broomfield Heights, as it was originally called. It opens with some footage of the the road connecting Denver and Boulder. Today, it's just full of towns and suburbs and people. Yeah, sure. And here, there's nothing. But this video is going to show us what happens to all that beautiful farmland. Like many growing crowded cities, Denver is reaching out to form suburbs for pleasant, wholesome living. And I see we're kind of showing shots of downtown Denver and the way it used to be. So we're in the 50s here, right? Like the war is over. America is about to boom. And it's going to boom in a very specific kind of way that is so much different from the life that came before it. You don't want apartment buildings or like houses kind of smashed together. There's a better way to live. And these men here are going to show us what that is. A modern dream city for 30,000 people. Why not do it all right from the beginning? Now we're showing actual city planners in lab coats because they're designing the perfect future like scientists. It's a science city, Andy. Why didn't we have science cities before this? A firm of experienced city planners was retained to make the dream city as perfect as men can conceive. Principal street arteries were planned to carry traffic easily and quickly to and from a smart, modern shopping center. The size and kind of stores and buildings were determined by extensive survey and study. Convenience goods and a full line of merchandise will be available along with medical clinics, doctors and dentist offices, and a bank. Well, Nate, this video is corny, kind of weird, but you know what I'm frankly glad that you showed it to me because it captures this really interesting level of excitement about this new kind of growth that was just starting to happen in the 40s and 50s. It was like looking forward into what was then this brand new future. And now we're kind of at this moment where we've been living in that future for for decades and decades. Uh And we're very familiar with all the shortcomings, right? It's expensive. It's environmentally problematic. And there's people that are kind of suggesting that we need to shift away from this kind of living, including our governor, Jared Polis. Yeah, this question of growth and development has become one of the biggest political stories of the year. And I think to really appreciate that, we should actually get in the car and see it on the ground in Broomfield Heights today. Let's go see what it looks like. You want to go to Broomfield? Let's go. But before we go... This is Purplish, a show about Colorado politics and policy. And for this season, the 2023 legislative session. I'm Andrew Kenny. And I'm Nate Miner. 
I cover transportation and growth, and lucky me, that means I've been paying a lot of attention to what's going on at the state capitol lately. That's because Governor Jared Polis has again made it the mission of his second term to rewrite how Colorado grows. Housing policy is climate policy. Housing policy is transportation policy. Housing policy is economic policy. Housing policy is water policy. And housing policy is public health and equity policy. He wants a Colorado, and especially a front range, that's denser, with more people living in less space, and hopefully riding transit, instead of driving around in lots of single-occupant cars. The vehicle for that vision is this huge gangbusters bill the lawmakers are debating right now. It would take some crucial development decisions out of the hands of local governments, and open up a lot of Colorado's single-family residential neighborhoods places like Broomfield, to much denser forms of housing. Which, of course, is why Nate wanted me to see that fabulous old promotional film. You're welcome. And why now we're about to take you along on a road trip to see how all those 1950s ideals have set the stage for today's fight. modern way to get to Broomfield is to start off on I-25, which, did that exist in 1955? Uh, it was probably still the Valley Highway back then. Alright, now we're going to get off the freeway. It, we did make good time. It's been like 15-20 minutes since we left downtown Denver. We're merging onto Wadsworth Parkway going north. Okay, we passed a church on the edge of the neighborhood, and that's exactly where the video said that it would be one day. It's still there. And to my left, I see lots of single-family homes. They got solar panels on them now. They look like they've been updated. So what do we think? Does this resemble the Broomfield that we were promised? Sure looks like it. I mean, the school is still here. The houses are right where the planners wanted them. This neighborhood now, pretty desirable. Uh, the houses, well built, still standing. I live in a neighborhood like this. It's great, I have space, you know, my kid can run around. Like, it is, in many ways, what was promised in that idealized vision. And not so great for walking, not so great for anything but driving, but yes, here it is, they built it. And that video really implies that like, you know, this dream is attainable. All right, but I'm gonna park right now outside of one of these ranch houses. Um, because there's a for sale sign in front of it. All right, so this very nice house was built in 1962. It's on the market right now for $599,000. And I just pulled up the listing here because I want to know what it used to cost. And I don't know, it doesn't go back as far as when it was built in the 60s, but if you scroll down, scroll down, scroll down. In 1987, it sold for $80,000. $80,000. We know there's been inflation. There has not been, you know, eight times inflation yeah, in okay. that time. So I did the a little bit of math. And if we do, if we uh, plug that $80,000 into an inflation calculator, it should cost, if it just tracked with inflation, about $210,000. Two hundred ten would be an absolute steal right now. People would lose their mind over it. If you listed a house for two ten in this market, you would have probably on the order of 300 buyers in the next day. Yeah, so this house costs maybe three times what inflation would suggest that it should. So in some ways, that dream of the attainable 
housing, you know, the, the idea that we can all move out by the thousands and just find the right place for us, appears to be pretty close to dead. All right, Nate, what we saw in Broomfield was obviously a pretty astounding price increase. But on the other hand, it's probably nothing that surprised anybody. You know, housing prices have, duh, skyrocketed in Colorado, something we're all familiar with. But let's draw out the connection of how we got here and kind of what happened to that dream of affordable suburban living for everybody that we saw in the old movie there. So it's actually kind of a complicated answer, um, and I don't really trust myself to explain it. So I got the help of an expert to kind of help us understand it. Okay, tell me your name and what you do. Carrie Makarevich. I'm an urban planning professor at CU Denver. The first thing she points out is that this kind of development really is a math problem. A math problem. It just takes a lot of lands, roads, and infrastructure for everyone to live this way in kind of the Broomfield Heights dream. Even people like Frank Lloyd Wright thought that was the model city to come as the super highway and everyone was going to have a car and a home and a lawn. And, you know, there was there were no projections. Nobody did the geometric math of everyone, given population growth over the next hundred years, um, has that size footprint of a lawn and home. And if we continue to have this type of population growth, we're going to, you know, Denver Metro would hit Kansas. So she's exaggerating, but not entirely. Anyway, she says Colorado was able to grow that way for a very long time. It really took off again in the 90s as Denver tried to grow its way out of an oil bust. The civic leaders got together and said, you know, we can't have this happen again. Denver, we need Denver to be a world-class city. We need to have sports teams and we need transit and we need a brand new airport. So obviously a lot of that stuff came true. We, I know we have a brand new airport and we have transit now and we have a ton more people. The 90s marked the beginning of this new and enormous growth period. But I'm curious because it feels like that early part of the boom, the 90s part, didn't come with quite the kind of housing crisis that we're looking at now. Yeah, I mean, the housing prices were going up in that time, but it was not as bad as we've been feeling it for the last few years. Mm. And I mean, that's because there was a lot of construction back then, like the new subdivisions like Highlands Ranch, Eastern Aurora, that (laughs) kept growing out toward the plains. Thousands upon thousands of new homes. Aurora. Each day your beauty shines as brilliant as the dawn. Aurora, in this great land we have a place we can grow strong. Together we'll see the dreams you dare to dream all coming true. They're my dreams too. And frankly, it sounds like it was a lot of sprawl. We were growing outward because we had space to do that or capacity to do that. Yeah, exactly. So all along the Front Range, the develop was almost entirely single-family homes Hmm. because that's what the communities would allow builders to build. But also, that's what people wanted. Opinion research out there will show Hmm. you that most Americans want to live in a single-family home. And the cities here really reflect that. Some of that is for environmental reasons um, and also making sure that a municipality can have the infrastructure to keep up with growth. Some of it is for um, exclusionary reasons because a a municipality only wants a certain type of housing and the people who can afford that housing. Zoning laws throughout their history dating back 
to the 1920s have also been used to enforce a kind of racist, frankly, and exclusive separation of communities. Like early on, there were these covenants in communities that would say people of color cannot live there. And there were also discrepancies in bank financing where black and Latino families couldn't get loans to go live in these communities. That's not the stated goal of anybody today. But the separation that was created in the way these subdivisions were originally created, that's kind of persisted today in some ways. Yes, totally. The dynamic has existed for decades. It's just different now. So I know that housing prices have risen for quite some time, but when did things start getting really out of whack? Yeah, so people like Kerry Makarevich say it really starts with the Great Recession. That began our modern housing crisis. And for a while, it was foreclosures, right? Mm -hmm. Foreclosures, evictions, people losing their homes. But within a few years, as the jobs kind of come back and people started moving again to the front range, housing did not come back. So you had tons of people moving to the state. I know Colorado added something close to a million people in the space of a decade. But you're saying that construction wasn't really responding to that influx of people in the way you would want it to or expect it to. Yeah. And Makarevich says it really just comes down to supply and demand. On the supply side, you know, we still see lots of construction in the last decade. Yeah, sure. You know, places like Castle Rock, they're still sprawling out. And in Denver, Aurora, Lakewood, you see new apartment buildings going up, especially around train mm-hmm. stations. But compare that to the population growth, it's just not keeping up. We just barely got back to the 90s level of building in the last few years. Wow. But even then, it's kind of uneven. Yeah, the pandemic threw another curveball for the construction industry. And so that brings us to now where, again, Duh, Denver prices are way up. Front range prices are way up. A lot of longtime lower income residents have been priced out of the cities or even the state altogether. And like we saw in Broomfield, it's not just the cities. The suburbs are getting unaffordable as well. Yeah. And, you know, the answer that planners have had for a long, long time, last 70 years or so, mm-hmm. was to just keep building out and out and out, right? More suburbs, more exurbs, more housing outward. Right. But we're kind of at this point where we're starting to see the consequences of all that. Roads are super congested, right? Like when you build a city in which you have to drive everywhere, there's traffic. It's kind of an environmental disaster to keep sprawling. Our summers are just kind of full of ozone alert days. A lot of that from tailpipe emissions. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, farmland is just disappearing and turning into more houses. Yeah, all that open space that they were advertising as being such an asset for living in the suburbs beautiful agrarian land surrounding the homes, like that's disappearing too. But let's zoom out a little bit. We've got this situation where the population of Colorado's continued to grow, but at the same time, the construction of housing in that last decade and beyond has really fallen off, has not been able to match the amount of housing that we were building back in the 90s. And that's added up to a housing shortage. There's just less housing per person than there was previously. That brings us to what's happening now, and specifically to Governor Jared Polis. He is the man, the guy with the plan that he says is going to turn this all around. All right, Andy, I have some questions for you around this. You got questions for me. Yeah, this is a political story at this point. So what's going on? (laughs) Yeah, and it's really become the governor's story. He's decided to do something huge, whether you like it or not. He kind of foreshadowed this just a little bit during his re-election campaign. He told me last fall that housing was going to be a top priority in his second term, even though he didn't exactly put it on his like campaign bus or anything. 
but it is one of the big ways he now wants to put his mark on Colorado, and if he does what he intends, it will be a mark that lasts long after he has moved on. We need to have a, a frank discussion about the interjurisdictional nature of housing. It really is interjurisdictional. The decisions of one community impact another, and people commute across several to get to work. As a state, from a water sustainability perspective, from an environmental perspective, uh, we simply have to find a way for people to be able to affordably live close to where jobs are, rather than continue to have exurban sprawl further and further out, more cars on the road, less water efficiency, uh, and ultimately higher costs for our residents. He's a man of ambition, huh? Yeah, this is not a small proposal that he's made. So the first thing to know about this proposal is that it would be a major shift that Polis wants to see from how Colorado has approached this topic of the housing crisis in the past. Because until now, the main thing the state did to try to make housing more affordable was to spend money. Lawmakers and voters have set aside hundreds of millions of dollars for what we call capital A designated affordable housing, which is apartments and townhomes or the developments kind of subsidized by the government and there are limits on the rent prices. And what Polis argues is that that will never be enough, that we'll never be able to spend enough money to reshape the market itself. And so what he wants to do is to change the rules of development to just make it easier to build more housing. And he says that increasing that supply is gonna help balance out demand and bring prices down. He's also saying you can't do that with more sprawl. You have to fit these new homes in the existing city, right? So how would that work? He wants to basically change how local governments manage development. If this bill comes true, he would override local zoning laws and say basically that in dozens of Colorado cities, they would now have to allow multifamily development, condos, duplexes in a lot of residential neighborhoods and apartment buildings and denser stuff along main corridors. So the idea here is that single family homes are the most expensive kind of homes to build. There, mm -hmm. there might be exceptions to that, right? Like a you know luxury apartment or something. But for the most part, single family homes probably gonna cost more than like a duplex or a townhome. Yep, so Polis says let's build more duplexes and townhomes. But I also wanna make clear that, you know, if this becomes law, the government is not gonna show up in your single family neighborhood with a wrecking ball and force you to knock down your house and replace it with condos. What it is saying though, is that a homeowner could maybe choose to sell it to a developer who might wanna build a triplex or a quadplex on what was a single family property. So I'm beginning to see why this is pretty controversial, right? Because mm -hmm. A, we know that change is scary. And B, we know that Americans really like single-family homes because it's what we've mostly lived in for a very long time. It's what's familiar, sure. Yeah, yeah. That's why you hear, I think, opponents around this bill saying, like, this is going to tear neighborhoods apart. Mm. Our water systems are going to be overwhelmed. Developers are going to run the world here. But on the other hand, supporters think that this could be not quite the magic bullet, but something that unlocks a big change without having to spend a ton of money they say it could be this kind of catalytic way to put a real dent in our housing woes. Like, what are you seeing? You've done some reading on this. What do you know about what these policies can accomplish or, or not? Yeah, so I looked up a couple different states and cities have kind of passed laws like this in the last five years or so. The first one was really Minneapolis in mm -hmm. 2018. They ended single-family zoning across the entire city. So now duplexes, triplexes, you can build them by right. You don't have to get it through a zoning board or anything they like legalize that. legalize duplexes. Yeah, exactly. 
And what the research there has found is, eh, you know, there's a few more duplexes in Minneapolis these days, but for the most part, it's not turned into like a different kind of city overnight. Hmm. But interestingly, one policy around this time Mm -hmm. that had a big effect, they cut parking requirements. They cut parking. What does that mean? So right now, if you're a developer and you want to build an apartment building in most cities in America, Mm -hmm. you have to build in a certain number of parking spaces Mm -hmm. for every unit in the apartment building, right? Because you don't want to flood the streets with cars that don't have anywhere else to park. The problem is building parking is super expensive. (laughs) And so... Minneapolis was like, all right, if you want to build an apartment near a bus line that comes every 10 minutes, don't worry about parking. You don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. And so what we've seen is that that made apartment buildings a lot more cheaper to build. And so many were built in the last like five, eight years. In Minneapolis. In Minneapolis that it actually moderated rent almost completely. It helped stop the rent increases. They've had a 1% rent increase over the last six years, according to Pew Research. So that goes toward this argument that adding housing supply helps meet demand and lowers prices. But at the same time, like, are we seeing negative effects? What can happen as those new duplexes and apartments and whatever come in? It really depends on the locality. You know, on a neighborhood level, there might be one neighborhood that the land is cheap because maybe it was industrial for a long time, but it's close to downtown or it's Mm -hmm. close to like a subway station. That is like the perfect situation for gentrification where the land is cheap. The government rezones it to allow for more density. Mm. We saw this in New York in the mid 2000s under Mayor Michael Bloomberg, and they saw a ton of building in Brooklyn Mm -hmm. and lots of gentrification. It got really expensive to live there. A lot Mm. of the stuff that was built was luxury. And there's different research that, depending on how you measure it, shows different things as far as displacement of existing communities. Mm -hmm. But it's certainly clear that it got a lot more expensive to live there. Yeah, that seems like it's a phenomenon that can be hard to avoid because new development comes in, makes an area more attractive to certain buyers, suddenly there's more demand within that area. That matches up with some reading that I've done that says adding new housing can kind of ease the market pressure overall while still raising prices within a specific neighborhood. So that's something important to keep in mind. Yeah, it's complicated. It really depends on the situation. Mm -hmm. But on the whole, it seems like more housing in a given overall area Mm -hmm. can actually, over time, reduce the cost of living there. Have you seen any like solid numbers on like exactly how many housing units we could anticipate out of the Colorado bill or what have other people seen in terms of changes? In Portland, they saw a big increase in apartment buildings. That's a pretty good comparison to Denver. It's more of a hot market. Their boom happened in the early 2010s where a lot of people were rushing to move there and they're kind of had a rental Mm. crisis in the early to mid 2010s. And they built tens of thousands of units. And by the end of the decade, that's when they started to see their rent increases kind of taper off. I want to mention here that this bill does include some nods toward preventing displacement and preventing gentrification. It's saying that cities have to take at least some actions to try to ensure that whole communities aren't displaced wholesale. We'll have to see how that works out. Uh, Cities can also kind of request some flexibility. This is supposed to address another concern. They can say, we don't have enough water or sewer to support this kind of development. They would now be allowed to go to the state and say, "Uh, we're not ready for all that upzoning. 
These are all issues that we're hearing people complain about, right? Whether it's people in Denver who remember the gentrification of the 2010s, especially in neighborhoods like the Highlands, Mm -hmm. or it's concerns from the Western Slope where water is just such a big issue and, and there are big questions about whether or not they actually have the water to serve this kind of density. That's what's interesting about this bill is you're going to hear different concerns, but a lot of concerns from all across the state because it applies a really big change that affects a lot of communities And that's created a very interesting and difficult political situation to get this passed. I think what you're saying, Andy, is that a lot of people hate this bill. But a lot of people love it. So as we've talked about, this issue is Governor Polis's big thing for his second term. And he's totally come out of the gate swinging. He's introduced this huge bill to take zoning partially out of the hands of local governments, rebalance the scales of power a little bit, let the state write some of the rules around construction and growth. And those rules, as you can imagine, the prospect of them changing, it has a lot of cities very, very unhappy. Mm. And it really comes down to this question of local control, right? The cities are saying, leave it to us. Help us build more housing. Help us build more affordable housing. And when you say cities, you mean like the mayors, the elected officials. Yeah, they are showing up on this. Mm. And, you know, they're saying, we know what's best for our communities. State, just stay out of this. I suspect that a lot of them are hearing from constituents. I've been to meetings and listened to this. Constituents who are very concerned about how their neighborhood might change. But, you know, Polis is not alone in this fight. Even if a lot of city leaders are lined up on one side against it, he's been kind of marshalling his own coalition. And you could really see this at the press conference last month I attended where he unveiled the bill. He had, like, environmental groups and unions up on the steps of the state capitol behind him. And, you know, also big business groups and the State Hospital Association and the NAACP. Thank you all for joining us. Let's say more housing now. More housing now. More housing now. Andy, those are groups that we usually do not see standing next to each other behind a policymaker. That's right. And they were all there to say that they were worried that without action, a lot of people just wouldn't be able to afford to live in Colorado anymore, which has disastrous effects, not just on the individuals affected, but on the economy itself. Okay, so that was, what, three or four weeks ago? As soon as we're done recording this, we've got to get over to the Capitol for the first committee vote on this bill. Uh So what do we think is going to happen there? Like, is Jared Polis and his coalition going to come through, or are the cities going to kind of crack down, and are they going to have the day? Well, you know, it's interesting. The governor has a tremendous amount of power at the legislature. He's easily the most influential Democrat in the state. He helped him build the Democratic Party as it exists here today. And when he says he's going to get something done, I tend to expect that it's going to get done. But at the same time, his side has already had to agree to some big amendments just to get the bill passed its very first committee vote. Like, you know, originally the bill was going to require upzoning in ski towns. They've now been totally carved out of that whole part of the bill. And they're also looking to soften some of the other requirements, you know, really scaling back the bill. That kind of happens, like with every major bill, they always leave room to negotiate. But on the other hand, we're also hearing from senators who are normally allies of the governor saying that they're opposed to the bill as it stands today. Okay, so you're the capital expert here. It still has to get through the full Senate. We know that. And then the House. Is this going to be a fight every step of the way? Yeah, at every stage, it's going to be a fight to get this thing passed. You know, the first part of the reason is that if you were wondering, Republicans are pretty unified in their opposition. They're saying they do not like this bill at all. 
That's interesting because in other states, we've seen Republicans do support stuff like this because they see it as less government regulation, more personal freedom as far as like property rights. Well, in Colorado, they're arguing that it is a growth of state power to overwhelm local power and that it's taking decisions out of the hands of local voters. But regardless, that means that Democrats have to get this passed for the most part with Democratic votes. And, you know, Democrats do have the majority But if just six of them, for example, in the Senate peel off, then the bill's in trouble. So this next stage in the Senate chamber, I expect even more amendments because every one of these lawmakers is hearing some mix of opposition and support and probably very intense feelings from their constituents and deciding what they want to do about this. It's the rare bill where there's some serious Democratic discord. And again, we're hearing from senators on the record saying they don't support it as it stands now. So I guess it comes down to for the Democrats in power that are going to vote on this thing, who are they going to listen to? Are they going to listen to the people who can't afford rent and maybe have to drive an hour to get to work? Or are they going to listen to their mayors, their city councilors, the homeowners in their district that just don't want to see their cities change? Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this episode, as usual. Literally. I mean, we did drive to Broomfield. Broomfield Heights. 20 miles, yeah. Well, let's end with a bit of a recap. So first, in a nutshell, the problem. Okay, the two problems, actually. First, Colorado has added more than a million people in the last 20 years, and we just have not built enough housing for them. And the other problem is that most of Colorado's land for housing is zoned for just single-family homes. And those are the most expensive, they lead to sprawl and traffic congestion, and we know that they're harder on the environment. That's the problem. And this year, Governor Jared Polis has said he has the solution. The most important word for that solution, upzoning. Upzoning. Polis wants to force cities, primarily along the Front Range, to allow multifamily development on a lot of those properties that right now can only be single-family homes. The idea being that denser development inside existing cities would be cheaper and easier on the environment than building more suburbs farther and farther into the countryside. But even if it passes, the bill probably won't transform Colorado's neighborhoods overnight. The economics really have to make sense for a developer to build all these new types of housing. Still, backers believe that in the coming decades, we'll get enough growth that some areas would get a lot more dense. On the other side of that debate are cities and their elected leaders who stand to lose some of the power that they have over what gets built within their own borders. I think that derives both from a not-in-my-backyard attitude where some people just don't want to see apartments and new people, but also can come from concerns about infrastructure, as well as folks who have been through gentrification and displacement and are distrustful of new development. Altogether, they argue that the state is taking a one-size-fits-all approach that ignores the kind of local concerns about growth. And this debate over how to grow is playing out right now at the state capitol. It could end up testing some of the limits of Jared Polis's power in the legislature. You know, backers have already agreed to water the bill down in some big ways to try to win votes. It'll now just apply to limited parts of cities instead of every residential neighborhood. There could be more changes in store as it makes its way through. But even if Polis and his pro-density coalition only get a portion of what they were seeking, this still has the potential to be a sea change for Colorado, to redraw the state's future. I mean, we started with this 1950s film that laid out a vision of how Colorado would grow. 70 years later, we're having a statewide debate that could set a new vision for decades to come. 
Purplish, the politics and policy podcast from CPR News. Your hosts this time around were Andrew Kenny and Nathaniel Miner. Follow this and other episodes wherever you get podcasts and at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. On the latest episode of My Story So Far, the new storytelling podcast from CPR, hear personal stories from students and educators in Aurora, Colorado. We pull up to the Dojang. And I felt like Jaden Smith version two in the making. And I'm like, woo, I'm about to meet my Jackie Chan. Wax on, wax off. And so I get my white belt, I get my white gi, and I suit up like this is the Avengers protocol for my first class. Uh, <laughs> my story so far. Find it wherever you get podcasts. Denver was crowned Hockey Town USA in 2022 with a string of championships from the Stanley Cup to Littleton Peewee Hockey. Well, we can add another to the list, sled hockey. CPR's Tony Gorman strapped in with the national champions of the Avalanche sled hockey team. Sled hockey is one of the hardest hitting sports in the Paralympics. So when the Colorado Ave sled hockey team offered me the opportunity to get on the ice, I had to give it a shot. You're gonna be tired. Okay. I sit down in the sled and they tie me in. Try this backhander. Oh, gotta say. I have to use Man. two sticks, one in each hand, to thrust myself across the ice. You have to push, balance, and move. But on top of all of that, you have to handle the puck too, and even shoot it. That's where I'm having trouble. Man, I don't know how you guys do it with the puck though, man. This seems oh. like a, man, that's a great skill set, I'll tell you that. Let's go, man. Come on, Em. Let's go, Ryan. Skate that puck. Jerry Duvall is president of the Colorado Sled Hockey Organization. He has seen the sport's impact on youth with disabilities. 95% of schools in America don't have disabled sports because it's just way too expensive when you only have one kid in your school that's disabled. Duvall thinks his organization can help meet that gap. Colorado Sled Hockey has five teams, including a youth team and a team for veterans. And then when we start bringing all these schools around, all these Denver schools, and you, you have all these little schools that are feeding into our organization, you know, that give us the kids that we have in our club and that are feeding into our A system. As I pushed across the ice, I met Alex Winberg, one of the Avs coaches. Like I said, my son's the reason why we're humming it, so. Oh, okay. And that's him right there. He points to his nine-year-old, Mitchell, who has acute oh, okay. flaccid myelitis, a neurological condition that can cause weakness in arms and legs. In his case, his right leg is paralyzed. The first few years, you might think it's like horrible and stuff because you're eliminated to do stuff. But then after like a few years, you would think of what the good things are about, the, about your disability. Mitchell says he didn't like the sport when he first started. Probably because um, I was like smaller at an age of three or because I was getting pushed instead of skating myself. So I like, I like skating myself instead of getting pushed. Two, three. Mitchell is the kind of kid Duvall and advocates of the sport want to turn into a star, a star like Malik Jones. Jones with an opportunity, a shot to score. Malik Jones, the 19-year-old, with his second goal of these. The Aurora product was born without shin bones, is an above-the-knee amputee on both legs, and only has three fingers on each hand. 
but Jones's grandmother got him involved with sled hockey at age seven. Rebound score! Malik Jones on the power play for Team USA. Jones made it all the way to the U.S. national team for the 2022 Winter Paralympics in Beijing. Just worked at it for years and years and make, made the sacrifices. Jones became only the second black athlete to represent USA in the sport. The team won the gold medal in China, and Jones says it feels good to inspire the younger generation. To be that voice for them, to have that impact on them, and just to know that anybody like me can do whatever they put their mind to, can uh, play football, professional football, professional basketball, be an accountant, you know, all those things. Here's Duvall again. That's Malik. Malik's got that Mamba mentality, you know? He's got that Jordan mentality. He's like, go, 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 let's put, put your foot on their throat, you know, they're down, let's go. 25 seconds! With athletes like Jones around, Duvall thinks oh it's prime God. time to expand access to the sport for students and eventually create a professional sled hockey league in Colorado. But in the meantime, he has a challenge for any doubters. I would challenge him to bring the best athlete and let him get in the sled for two weeks to a month and train as hard as they can and then just come and play a game with us, you know, and see where you're at. As for me, uh, don't want to hit the board, don't hit the board, don't hit the board. I hit the board. I'm just going to leave sled hockey to the real athletes. I'm Tony Gorman, CPR News. And that is Colorado Matters for today with thanks to this team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield, and I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us.